Well, this morning, again, it's, it's so good to be together, to worship, to lift up Christ, to praise His holy name, and to be encouraged about going into a new week and uh, drawing near to Him. Here this morning, we continue in our series on in the book of Judges and on the life of Gideon. And today it's part three, Gideon and his slippery slope. Last week we worked through Judges 7 and the record of one of the greatest Old Testament victory scenes on display in the Old Testament. It's a great victory scene. And uh, it was about Israel and 300 men. Woo, right? Yeah. Pretty amazing. Israel and 300 men versus 135,000 Midianites, Amalekites, and sons from the east. Now that makes it even more impressive. And Israel with 300 men and no name Gideon to lead them from one of the smallest tribes. And Israel and 300 men and Gideon and... What kind of weapons? Weird weapons. Some weird weapons. A pitcher or a a jar of some sort and a, a horn. That'll do it. And a torch to go inside. Okay. So remember the point. So that Israel, what? Would not boast in the victory that Israel had no other way to look at it but to give God the glory for the victory. Okay? It's all built up because of divine sovereign plan. Okay? To bring about the victory and give the credit to the victory to God. And in the passage today, in chapter 8, just remember what starts unraveling. What starts unraveling is that stuff starts popping up because now here's that slippery slope, that figurative slippery slope that Gideon starts on and the rest of Israel starts into. But you know what? This idea that everyone would know that the victory is God's, that's a pattern in the Bible, my friend. It's a pattern in the Bible. And you know what? It just keeps going and going and going until one thing. God's salvation. God's salvation is the picture that we're supposed to see beyond this battle that Gideon had that was totally outnumbered, totally out-weaponized, if you will, And everything points to God, and that's what it is with salvation. That's what we need to see behind this story, is God's salvation. The enemy can outnumber us. We're overwhelmingly, the odds are in the enemy's favor in a battle like this, right? I mean, just think of all the camels that the Midianites had. All the stuff that they had. And it was all to point to the fact that Israel, there's no way you're going to win. There's no way. The great strength that they had, the dominance, the, 
the anger and hatred they had. Everything builds up. Not going to happen, no way. And folks, listen. That's what God wants to see in regards to salvation. There's no way that you can win that battle. There's no way that you can win the war regarding saving yourself. We've got people still in this room. I don't know. I'm just kind of throwing out the guesswork here that people are still relying on their good works to save them. And if that's your case, if that's what you're thinking, when you die and God might say, why should I let you into heaven? And you're referring to something like, oh, I, I, I did this, or I, I, I hope that I was good enough here, that immediately points out what you're relying on. You're relying on your good works, yourself. That's, that's what's woven in our fabric. As a person, that's what we have woven inside of us. I'm going to be good enough for God. I'll somehow do it. Or other people just totally reject God and say, no, there's no God. And so somehow, someway, we push God out of the scene. That's what our country has done, right? Our country has done that. All sorts of ways. And we see it on a regular basis now. You can scour the news and every day you can come up with something that points that out. It's all about man now, isn't it? It's all about how we'll put it all together, isn't it? And people are missing the message of salvation. It's the greatest victory that God has ever brought about. I believe that with all my heart. There's nothing that matches the victory that's in Jesus Christ. He has overcome our greatest enemy in that. What's that? Hello? Death. Sin. He's overcome that. He is risen. Yeah. I know, I caught you off guard. That's the victory. Yeah. Okay? That is the victory. And when we read in the Old Testament of this ridiculous victory brought about by a weak, lowly Gideon, it's pointing us to one thing, and that is to Jesus Christ. It keeps, that's what the Bible keeps doing, pointing you to Jesus Christ. Are you paying attention to that as you read the Bible? Are you asking God for insight and wisdom as you read the Bible? Because it points to Calvary. It points to the empty tomb. Victory. Hallelujah. Now, some of you here still have not put your faith personally, personally put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we would rate you as really, you know, really good people. But we're going by our standard, not by God's standard when we rate that individual. We could rate Gideon. What do you think of Gideon? You know, Gideon's a pretty good guy. He, he kind of got it. And he, he worshiped God, right? And he followed God's plan. Good guy. He's mentioned in the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. All that. It's great. But see, he had faith in 
in the Lord, in the plan that God has, we believe that He, yes, He's there in glory. What about you? You know what? I'm convinced that um, most all of us figure, hey, we've got 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 more years, however many more years, we, we got that in the bag, don't we? You, you are not guaranteed another minute. <laughs> I'd like to think that, you know, we're all, you know, saying, oh, we're healthy and fit and all that jazz, right? We eat well, we're in a, a you know, a safety conscious society, all that. But there's not a guarantee that you have. There's not a guarantee that I have. Are you in a right relationship with God? Are you? It's only through Jesus Christ, my friend, you, you need to come to faith in Him and trust in what He accomplished. And it's all about His righteousness that's put on me. That's what the, the, the garments are, the robes of righteousness in Revelation are about. It's given by Christ. It's not attained by you writing a check or sending off money to some pastor, evangelist, whatever. No, it's through faith in Jesus Christ. You must be born again. That's not I say, hey, there's options. No, you must be born again. And the way to do that is you understanding you're a sinner before a holy God and you must come to faith in the one that he's provided, Jesus. There's the victory when you come to faith in Christ. There is the victory. Now, now we get into this issue of Gideon and this slippery slope. Really? Yeah. Because the victory was secured by who? God. God secured the victory. We ended last week by saying he secured peace. But let's look and see what kind of peace there really is. Chapter 8. Okay. Here's the slippery slope that Gideon starts in on. And he does not necessarily initiate it, but it's brought upon him. And here it is in chapter 8. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, Gideon, what is this thing you have done to us? Not calling us when you want to fight against Midian. And they contended with him, what? Vigorously. What are they doing? They got their feathers ruffled. They weren't called in. What is that, my friend? There's a show of pride. Okay? So, if you want to follow along in your outline, that's point number one. Under, under number one, the mess that follows success. Hey, there's great success. Yes, it's God's success, isn't it? But the mess that follows is brought forth by pride. Letter A. Under number one, beware of pride. Ephraim's complaint was really driven by jealousy or their injured pride, if you will. Um, this was a petty move on their part. Now, you know, it's not like Gideon came from a little break in the action. Gideon and his troops came along and, you know, they're like, what are they doing? Gideon and his troops are chasing the, the other two kings that are on the loose. So they're after him. And here's this, this complaint that's brought up. You know what? That's what the enemy loves to see, right? You with me? 
That's what the enemy, Satan, loves to see. Is here's a big victory, and now here's what? Wah, 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 wah. Complaint. Driven by pride. Okay? So there, there's no real glory, no real joy, no praise over what God had done. In fact, it's very interesting if you take note of what's not really mentioned a whole lot in chapter 8. There's a reason, and we'll get to that in a little bit. So, the believers, <laughs> you know, here's, here's the issue of uh, the complaint from this tribe. And just like pride slipped in for them, listen, pride can slip in in your life, Christian. The pride can slip in so easily, and it does. So here's really what's at stake is the unity of God's people. The unity of God's people is really more important than the, the uh, raising the complaint and the show of pride. So you've got to watch for that. Letter B. The next one. Gideon moves on. And by the way, Gideon did counsel the situation in a, in a way that settled everything. And you read that in verse 3. Their anger toward Gideon subsided when he said that. Then, verse 4, Then Gideon and the 300 men who were with him came to the Jordan, crossed over, what? Weary, see that? Weary, yet pursuing. They're all worn out. So Gideon brings forth a request, a simple request, a legitimate request. And he said to the men in verse 5, uh, the men of Sukkoth, please give loaves of bread to the people who are following me, for they're weary. And I'm pursuing Zeba and Zalmunna, the kings of Midian. Here's a good cause, a good fight going on. And he makes this request. And Gideon said, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 6, the leaders of Sukkoth said, are the hands of Zeba and Zalmunna already in your hands that we should give bread to your army? Come on, where's your work, man? Where's the results here? What's with it? <laughs> now, we got to put ourselves in, let's put ourselves in Gideon's shoes and the 300 with him. They're not traveling in Humvees. You know, I don't even know as if, I don't think they have horses or camels. And they're chasing the enemy down. Oh, by the way, this benefits the people of Sukkoth, it benefits them. And oh, by the way, the rule in Israel is show hospitality to your fellow tribesmen. Show hospitality here. But the answer is, eh, not going to help you. Same thing that follows. Look at verse 8. By the way, Gideon says, okay, in verse 7, I'm going to come back and deal with you later. We'll talk about that in a bit. <laughs> then, verse 8, and he went up from there to Penuel and spoke similarly to them. The men of Penuel answered him just the, as, in the same way that the men of Sukkoth answered. So, Gideon turns around and says, when I return safely, I'm going to tear down this tower. He's going to put some judgment on these guys. Why? Is this out of, uh, out of character here? Well, I think 
if we really study this passage, you know what's happening? Underneath it, I think Gideon, he's getting bugged. He's upset. And it's starting to unravel for him. And I think this is where we start seeing him on this slippery slope. It's how he's responding. Yeah, this is not supposed to happen. But this is where we see in verses 4 through 9, letter B, the, the problem of disloyalty. The problem of disloyalty. They're supposed to be getting some help here. But really, the, the folks in Sukkoth and Penuel are on the east side of the Jordan River. They are in the most close uh, in proximity to the Midianites returning to them and doing some harm to them. So here what we have is some self-preservation happening. They're concerned about their own hides, first and foremost with the enemy in mind. Important little thought. Is that how you and I respond in situations with the enemy in mind first? Or do we have our family of believers, if you will, in mind and concern for the glory of God? That's the plan that God has for His people is the glory of God. So, these folks on the east side of the Jordan River, they're really driven by fear in their response to Gideon. Let her see. And then here's all these other pressures. Beware of the many pressures that follow. Deeper, the deeper one goes into leadership, the harder decisions you'll have to make. That's a, that's a given. Gideon and his men capture the two kings. And that was a miracle in itself that they were able to chase on these guys and capture them. And they're still totally outnumbered. But they captured these kings. And then it's time to come back and deal with the selfish men of Sukkoth. He inflicted blows upon them. He, in a sense, what I understand is here's a public scourging that he did. But beyond that, above that, he deals more severely with Penuel. He tore down their, their tower like he promised, but then it says he killed all the men in the city. I, I end up thinking, here's, here's what's going on with Gideon. You mocked me. You mocked me in how you treated us and, as we came through earlier, and now I'm going to give it to you. And his, I'm just wondering, I, I can't give it for certain, but I'm just wondering if his rage just took over here. Now, we know that Gideon is a what? A, an appointed judge by God. So he can kind of stand there in, in his position. He's an appointed judge. He's uh, bringing about God's work, if you will. But let's continue on with this thought. That was the mess that follows success. Letter uh, Number two is the mess of hidden agendas. And what we see in verses 18 through 21 is Gideon's retaliation. Gideon's retaliation. Now the attention shifts to the two captured kings. Verse 18 and 19 show us what Gideon has been holding on to. Look at verse 18 and 19. Then he, Gideon, said to Zeba and Zalmunna, 
the, the two kings that they captured, what kind of men were they whom you killed at Tabor? And they said they were like you, each one resembling the son of a king. And he, Gideon, verse 19, said they were what? You see it? My brothers. They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had only let them live, I would not kill you. There, there you have it, my friend. There you're seeing it. God, uh, Gideon's saying, I'm going to get you. Why? Because you killed my brothers. And I would let you go, but you killed my brother. Here's retaliation. It's no longer, listen, it's no longer about a national um, emphasis or a national campaign. It's really about now, what we see is it's more like it's about Gideon. It's not a concern about honoring God. It's about getting, allowing, or getting his revenge. And then look at verse 20. Look at this. So Gideon said to Jether, his firstborn, rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Listen, all that was, that wasn't so much about Gideon's son. That was more about humiliating the two kings. It was a humiliation to be killed by a youth. Oh yeah, if you're killed by an adult in battle, great, no problem. Hey, you died a a warrior's battle. But to be killed by a youth... But the son was too afraid. He did not do it. And then the kings themselves call out Gideon and say, hey, you do it. So Gideon kills them. And now that the kings are dead, look at the transition now. So that's Gideon's retaliation. Now in letter B, it's Gideon's deviation. His deviation. Verse 22, look at it. Then... Following the death of these kings, verse 22, Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, both you and your son, also your son's son, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Oh, popularity kicks in, right? Hey, Gideon's their guy. We need to put him in as leaders, as our leader, as our king. Well, Gideon gives the right answer, okay? Gideon says, no, 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 no. God is our king. Great answer. Really good answer. But there's a problem. Look at what happens. He says, you know, the Lord will rule after you or shall rule over you in verse 23. Now verse 24 goes right into it. Look at it. It says, yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. What's that? Give me some gold from our plunder of the Midianites. Okay, he's rejecting the the role of king, but yet at the same time, he's saying, hey, um, give me some of the spoil here, because, and he doesn't even tell them what he's going to do. But what does he go and do with the gold? He gets, I don't know, I think the translation of it is almost 40 pounds of, of a plun, of the portion of the plunder. And he goes and he makes an ephod. What's that? Well, it's a, a, it's a priestly garment that you put on. It's like a vest. Okay? And, and that's what he does. You say, what's the matter with that? Well, only a priest could do that. 
only a priest could be wearing the priestly garment. Gideon wasn't a priest. Here's, here's a subtle violation on Gideon's part. You see what's happening? Here's his little hidden agenda. And he's gone away from what God said earlier in chapter 7. Listen, this is my victory. Give the glory to me. And yet, one chapter, chapter 8, here we go. He's got his own thing going. And look at what happens after the, the making of this ephod. And Gideon made it into an ephod, verse 27, and placed it in his city, Ophrah. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. Somehow, some way, they're now involved and entangled. And that's why it says what? So that it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Okay, there you go. But on top of it, we can say, but the, hey, the, you know, the, the land um, was undisturbed. Everything was fine for 40 years. In this context, it definitely had problems brewing underneath the surface. We can say, hey, there's peace in the land. We've got peace in our land. Yeah? Yeah? But underneath the surface, all sorts of stuff are ready to explode, erupt, and, and go all over the place. And so, this, I believe, was the leader deviating from God's plan. Now we move on. No, point number three, the mess of backsliding. It's just right out there in the open now. The mess of backsliding. Because look at what happens. In verse 29, then... Jerubbabel. Who's that? He, they're now referring to Gideon. Okay? The son of Joash went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons who were his direct descendants, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Interesting, very interesting here. So, the backsliding that I mentioned at this point really already had started. And the back, the back in, you know, the, here's the public scourging and the killing of the men of Penuel and how he went about killing the two kings. It's kind of written on the wall here. Letter A, he's aided by worldly distractions. What's that about? Well, really... If we were to read this from a Jewish perspective, what he's done is now he's living the king's lifestyle. He's got how many wives? It doesn't even say. He's got 70 sons. Yes, there was polygamy, but not at this extent. And plus, oh, by the way, he's got a concubine on the side. Hey, this is a kingly lifestyle. He's really cooking. You know, this is great. This is how the rich and famous live, my friends. Here's worldliness that's now not just in the mind, but now in the actions. Worldliness in one's actions. Then letter B, under number three, he's aiming, he's aiming for worldly distinctions. 
And what does that mean? The simple statement given in verse 31. His concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son and he named him Abimelech. Do you understand how important it is to name a child in this culture? It was very important. There, there, was a, there was understanding of a meaning of a name behind the names given to their children. It, you know, sometimes we give a name like, I'm still wondering what Sherwood means. For those that don't know, that's my given name. It has something to do with out of the bright forest. <laughs> really, I'm serious. Out of the bright forest. But, uh, you know, they really didn't understand the meaning of that name. It was more about some author my dad really liked. Okay. Now, back on track here. That was not the case with Israel and the people in Israel. They gave a name with the meaning understanding behind it. So what does Abimelech mean? My father is king. My father is king. Not I am king. My father is king. Here's dad doing his thing. Okay? So the presence of worldliness is the proof of backsliding. The presence of worldliness is the proof of backsliding. It's not a good, it's not a spiritually healthy condition for God's people to be in. Some places would say, you don't even mention about backsliding. Either a person is saved and walking with the Lord or they're not saved. How do we handle it here? Have you always been, quote, close to the Lord, walking with the Lord in your Christian life? Well, there's times in your life where you, I do it, we, we understand. There's times where it's not happening like it should. It doesn't mean you've lost your salvation. Now you've got to get it together again and ask for salvation. No, no, no. It's a matter of restoring fellowship. You confess your sin. Do you have to ask God for forgiveness all over again? Do you? No. You confess your sin to God. You, you say, God, I have, I have gone astray. I've sinned. I've, I've rebelled against your will. I've not obeyed. So you confess it and make things right again with your heavenly Father. And understand, it can happen. If it happens to Gideon, if it happens to Moses, if it happens to David, others, Peter, Paul, does it happen to you? Yes, it happens to us. Acknowledge it. Recognize it. Identify what's going on in your life. Don't just carry on going down the slippery slope. This is why I need grace today. This is why you need grace today. That's why the battle is the Lord's and He won the victory of salvation. It's not up to you. He already accomplished it. What's up to us is responding with righteous behavior. Respond to what God's doing in your life. and Say, God, 
I want to walk in a righteous way. I want to respond with righteous living, righteous behavior. And that's what we find in the Word. That's why we need the Word of God to continue instructing us, to continue counseling us. Point number four. You have to fill it in. You know what it it comes to? Gideon and his slippery slope. You know what it is? The mess of a sad ending. The mess of a sad ending. Look at verse 33. Then it came about as soon as Gideon was dead that the sons of Israel again played the harlot with the Baals and made Baal Bereth their God. And thus the sons of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hands of all their enemies on every side, nor did they show kindness to the house of Jerubbabel in accord with all the good that he had done to Israel. Okay. We can split this out really in, in two ways. It's the issue of really people walking according to the flesh and the fleshly desires. That's what happened here. They, they were uh, attracted to, here's the, here's the gods of this culture. And they went after it. And what resulted is faithlessness. Remember the title of our series? Here's a faithful God and a faithless people. And here it shows up again. And the call for us today, my friend, believer in Jesus Christ, we need His help and His strength to walk in a faithful way today. Today. And through this week. And we do that with, here's, the Word of God, reliance on God, and the, the whole beauty of prayer, the privilege of prayer. So, what do you think of Gideon? We need to realize that pride in our story, as we wrap this up here about Gideon, Let's remember, pride is always, your pride, my pride, is always ready to pop up and take the moment and grab the moment in spiritual settings. Not just in secular arenas, but in spiritual settings, pride can kick itself up just as easy as in the secular settings. And you and I better be on the alert, Christian, about Pride popping its ugly head up again. And you can be 20 years old or you can be 80 years old and the pride problem still manages to pop itself up. And it's taking the spotlight away from God and putting it on us or our situation. And it's best handled with love and humility. Right? Colossians three twelve. But you, who are holy and beloved, chosen of God, put on a heart of compassion, humility, kindness, gentleness. Right? Put it on. 
Pride is what drove Gideon to nurse his anger about his brothers. That's what drove him. And this is why we read of his handling of the two different groups who did not help him and his troops. Then the issue of backsliding takes on an appearance of success, doesn't it? Gideon looked like, uh, to the natural eye, Gideon, man, look at him. He got back from battle. Look at him. Look at his style of living. Wow, that's pretty cool. I mean, look at, he's got all these wives and 70 sons. What a, what a, what a prestige. Folks, that's backsliding. That went the way of the world. And then the whole issue of what it it boils down to. We just read of the finish of Gideon in his earthly life. The finish. The end. How will your life end? Some of you are much closer to passing on than others. How will your life end? It is. It's a challenge for all of us. So we need to be tracking and be alert, be aware of the condition of your heart. Because in the end, that's really what's going to show forth. Matthew twelve thirty four says, from, For the mouth speaks out of that which fills the heart. What fills your heart? What delights your heart? What do you have pleasure in, in your heart and in your life? Is it the things of this world? Well, you're going to end up with nothing anyway. The, the bumper sticker says it. You can't take your toys with you. So recognize what's at stake. And let's magnify God and His grace that brought about the greatest victory ever. And that's the salvation of a sinful, rebellious mankind. My friend, if you're here this morning, you don't know the Lord, or you have strayed and walked away from Him, we say, come, return. Come to Jesus. Come and believe. Admit your sin. Admit your folly. Admit your pride. Call out to Him. He's in the business of reconciling people. Don't continue to stiff-arm God. We live in a secular world that is very strong, very powerful with the arguments that, oh, it doesn't matter. And no, God's not there. We're all just happy, you know, living on earth. Let's just have peace. No, that's a, that's a lie. And it comes down to one thing. If you can prove that Jesus did not rise from the grave, there you go. You, you, you've said, yeah, there's, there's, no, there's nothing worth it then. It's all a bunch of hogwash. If that's the thing you can prove, and see, that's what everything hinges on, my friend. Everything hinges on the fact that Jesus rose again. And there is the greatest victory. Will you walk with Him today? Will you rejoice in the fact that He is risen? And that your sin problems can be solved by coming to Him, by 
continuing to submit to Him and following His Word, obeying His Word. And there's victory in Jesus. Okay? Victory in Jesus. Turn in your Bible to Hebrews chapter 11. Our Sunday school class ended with reading a passage from Hebrews 11. And our service here this morning will end with a reading from Hebrews 11. Turn to Hebrews 11, 32. Just so you get it straight here, you know, we could say, well, there's the end of Gideon's life. Boy, that's really sad. And yeah, it did end in a bad way. But you know what? Here's the last word on Gideon. Let's stand together and look at this as we close. Hebrews 11, 32 through 34. And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, Samuel, and the prophets who, track along here, who by faith conquered kingdoms, performed acts of righteousness, obtained promises, shut the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword from weakness, were made strong, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. There's Gideon putting a foreign army to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection and others were tortured, not accepting their release in order that, what? They might obtain a better resurrection. Okay. There we go. And we remember one thing from this. God's grace for Gideon. There's Gideon in the hall of faith because Gideon walked by faith. You, my friend, when we stumble and fall, it's not over. Confess sin. Get up and walk again with Christ. Draw near to Him. Submit to Him. Love Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. And we want to be people who are responding in humility, recognizing our need for You and Your grace at all times. Lord, we confess to You that there's many times we've gone off in our own strength, in our own wisdom, in our own self-sufficiency, and we understand that that really is sin against You. I pray, Lord, that You would help us to humble ourselves and walk with You and look to You, trust You, thank You, and praise Your holy name in all that we face. Lord, thank You for the day that we have before us. Help us to be a blessing to other people. Lord, we rejoice in you. We thank you for the great, the greatest victory ever accomplished. That Jesus died, was buried, and rose again from the grave. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen, Amen. God bless you. Have a great day.